0: One of the really interesting components to the book of Revelation is a distinct pattern and really a structure that's presented in the way that these three various judgments, the wrath of God, the way it pours out, the way it plays out. Like First you'll find that there's a coupling of seven. There's, There's three couplings of seven. So whether it's the seal judgments or the trumpet judgments or the bowl judgments, there's seven. In each set also, though, you'll discover a unique coupling of four, then a distinct grouping of two, which will then be followed by an intermission before the seventh judgment initiates the next set of seven. So as you study the book of Revelation, there's a lot of pattern, there's a lot of structure, there's a lot of intention. I should also note that you should keep in mind two things when studying the book of Revelation. First, within each of these movements in the heavenly space, Again, whether it's the opening of a seal, whether it's the blowing of a trumpet, or the pouring out of a bowl. Whatever's happening in heaven, there is a corresponding event being carried forth on earth, representing the judgment of God. And as you unpack that, so everything you see happening in heaven, there's a corresponding event happening on earth. But the other thing you always have to keep in mind is that the way that time kind of plays itself out in heaven... Uh, works out differently in the way it corresponds on the earth. And and this chapter will provide us a great example of this. Like, John will see the the fifth trumpet sound, but then five months pass before you get the blowing of the sixth trumpet. Again, kind of a, a weird way that it plays out. John's not waiting for five months between trumpets, but again, the way time corresponds, always keep that in mind, it's a little wonky. Now with Jesus' opening of the seventh seal, John watches as seven angels step forward to blow seven trumpets in sequence. With the first trumpet, a third of the vegetation of earth is burned up. With the second trumpet, a third of the seas are turned to blood. With the third, a third of the fresh water becomes undrinkable. And with the fourth, a third of the sky ends up being darkened. And following this fourth trumpet, John closes out chapter 8, saying, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of earth. And why? Because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Even though things in this first wave of, of judgment, is bad, I mean, terribly bad. The conditions on Earth, if you try to extrapolate out, or it's bleak, and yet God here sends this angel to warn humanity that as bad as things were, <laughs> they were about to get much, much worse. With the first four trumpets, devastated the planet, seemed to be focused ecologically. The next three trumpets specifically target humanity. Now I want to give you a warning up front that revelation 9 is really really strange (laughs) in fact if you just if you just read through it on your own you'll be like this is strange you're going to hear me teach through it and you're going to be like i didn't think you could make it any stranger than it naturally was but you accomplished that Pastor Zach. what was already strange you made bizarre like it's going to get weird so buckle up. In fact, this will probably be the strangest Bible study I have ever taught in my life. And, and I know that because I've already prepped the Bible study. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre. Now, there's a lot of ways you can tackle a chapter like this. Our approach is going to be, well, we're going to read through the whole chapter. And then we're going to kind of go back and work our way through the chapter. So I felt like we should read through it. Reading through it will give you some context. Um, and then We'll fill in the blanks, kind of work it all together. One of the other things we're going to do is, so we're going to have, you know, th- we, we're going to look at two blowing of the trumpets. And so I've asked Justin, uh, Justin, if you could come up. I mean, Justin's a little shy. Uh, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a big guy, but he's shy, especially when, he, when the pastor makes him come in front of people. But Justin has a, a bona fide, authentic shofar. And so if uh, one day in heaven, this will be the instrument. uh, You see, we even put light on you there, Justin. (laughs) We even put so. So when when we read of the blasting of the trumpet, we're going to pause and hear the blasting of the trumpet. The plan was, is we were going to have Justin just in the balcony and we weren't going to tell any of you what was going to happen. And I concluded that Larry would have a heart attack and Joe would stand up thinking he's getting raptured, you know, like so we really needed to just kind of like let you know it's going to happen. All right. So let's buckle up. Um, We read Revelation nine. You are no (laughs) you're no angel. We're going to do this. You guys ready? Revelation nine, verse one. Then the fifth angel sounded. It's like an elephant. <laughs> That's the worst trumpet sound I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, it's great. This is great. So the, so the fifth angel sounded. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. And smoke rose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Verse 7, the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of, of iron and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails. Their power were, was to hurt men for five months and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded. There you go. And I heard a voice. You're, you're done. You're done officially. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, and we have no idea whose voice this is, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. So, You guys got all that? Makes total sense. (laughs) Following the blast of the fifth trumpet, John says, look back, he says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, the first thing that you should notice about this particular star that John mentions is that he had to have been some type of created being, and we shouldn't view him as being a literal star. And the reason for that is, is note, John, he says, I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given this key. So John immediately connects the star to this masculine pronoun, to him. So it's not a literal star that John's seeing. The other important detail is the fact that John describes the fall. In the past tense, I saw a star fallen. It's, it's already happened. Now, we don't know when. But John is describing what you might consider to be a fallen star. Additionally, because this fall resulted in the, rel- the relocation of this being from heaven to earth, right? It's logical, the star that John sees was an angel of some kind that had been stripped of of its its heavenly glory and position. In fact, this phrase, fallen from heaven, interesting phrase, likely provides us a a definitive clue as to the identity of this fallen star, this fallen angel. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, and you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you, but this is what the prophet wrote. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, same phrase. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. prophet adds, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. To the lowest depths of the pit. It, with these things in mind, we understand with quite a bit of clarity that following the blowing of this fifth trumpet, John sees Satan given the key to the bottomless pit. So that kind of sets the stage for the entire chapter. Satan, the fallen star, is given a key to this, this pit. Now, naturally possessing the key Grant Satan the ability to set loose on the earth creatures that were being held in the pit. In his vision, John says that that when he opened the bottomless pit, so when Satan had opened this pit, smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. So Satan is releasing some creatures. Now in order for me to explain what I believe John is watching play out on the earth, With the fifth and sixth trumpet. I think it would be helpful for you if I just kind of play my whole hand, put all the cards out on the table, just right from the beginning, kind of tell you what I think, and then we'll work backwards unpacking it. It's my opinion that Revelation 9 records for us a future invasion of the planet by two groups of supernatural beings. You'll have demons who will torment men for five months, followed by an army of what I see to be fallen angels who proceed to kill a third of mankind. Now, before you immediately turn me off, like, what are we talking about? Like, keep in mind two important things. In fact, if you do, my thesis isn't all that outlandish. First, there is no question that the Bible affirms the existence of of angels and demons, right? We, we, are, we understand this. Like, Not only are these beings referenced frequently throughout all of the scriptures, but we actually have a historical uh, record, a moment in time when their interactions, demonic interactions with humanity, happened to occur openly and on a massive scale. Like, we'll get to this. Second thing you got to keep in mind, is that even our secular world, a world that rejects what we would call the supernatural, is growing increasingly cognitive of the reality that we are not alone in the universe. In fact, if you see the accounts of alien encounters... Or the documented evidence of foreign objects moving into and out of space in ways that defy the the, the physics we know of this world. The idea of a future alien invasion being actually an invasion of demons and angels. It's not all that crazy as crazy it might initially seem. Now in order to understand what's happening in this chapter, And more specifically, what Satan is releasing from the bottomless pit. Let's start by talking about the pit itself. There's no question, there is an unavoidable measure of mystery regarding the spiritual realms that exist outside of our physical dimension. But the Bible does describe for us several of these locales. Aside from heaven, and what was known as paradise before, the Bible tells us that the final destination of the unbelieving world, along with Satan and demons and the rest of the fallen angelic host, is a place the Bible calls hell, which is also known as Sheol, or the eternal lake of fire. And please note that hell is, is presently unoccupied. Like, hell, it's, it's unoccupied presently, and... It's, it's not a place where Satan and his boys hang out. That's not hell. In fact, if you tell someone to go to hell, you should, you should be like, well, I, I technically can't go there yet. So get your theology right if you're going to insult me. Like, furthermore, the scriptures describe for us a place known as Hades. So we have hell, but we also have this place, Hades, which is where the souls of the wicked or the unbelieving world are sent to wait final great white throne judgment at the end. So if you tell someone to go to hell, more accurately, just say, go to Hades, because that's where you can go. Now, what's interesting about this bottomless pit, okay, that John references here in Revelation 9, is that it doesn't appear to be hell, and it doesn't appear to be Hades. In fact, it appears to be a third location that's also known in the scripture as the abyss. Now, regarding what we can glean about this place from the details that John has provided in our text, we can say that this bottomless pit appears to be a place of of incarceration. Like, think of it as a prison of sorts. A place where certain wicked creatures are being kept under a lock and key. You know, even after Satan looses these creatures from the bottomless pit, the bottomless pit will be mentioned again towards the end of the book when Satan is placed into chains and thrown into this prison to be held for a thousand years. Now, obviously, the next logical question in order to unpack what John is witnessing in this chapter would center on whether or not the Bible provides us any clues as to what creatures would be held in such a place. So, in order to know what's happening on the earth, you need to know uh, what the pit is about And once you understand what the pit is about, then you start looking at, well, what kind of creatures would be in this pit? Because that'll then clue you in on what's being released and what's happening on the earth. Now, broadly speaking, we understand that God formed man from the dust of the earth. Sixth day, we were created. We also... We don't know exactly when the angelic hosts were created. There's some debate on that. But we know they're created beings. Like God created two different types of beings in this world. Human beings and angelic beings. So right from the bat, we've got these groups of people. And additionally, as with humanity. So man fell. Went into rebellion, sinned. The Bible tells us that a similar occasion happened with the angelic hosts. So God created the angels. Satan, we already read it in Isaiah 14. His heart welled up with pride. Wanted to be like God, wanted the wanted worship, uh, the acclamation, the acclaim of God. He fell from heaven, and we're told scripturally that he took with him a third of the angelic hosts. So a third of all of the angels followed after Lucifer. You know, It's worth pointing out that according to Jesus, and what he said in Matthew 25, the everlasting fire, or hell, was originally prepared for the devil and these fallen angels. Man's rebellion opened the design. Now, my point in bringing these things to your attention is to remind you that active within the dimensions around us right now is the existence of the angels of God as well as fallen angels. Like right now in the spiritual dimension you have other forces with us. They are as real as you and I right now, just in another dimension. And once more, the Bible is clear that because angels, whether fallen or not, also possess the ability to take on a physical form and cross into our dimension. You know, it's highly likely, according to what the author of Hebrews says, that you could entertain angels and not even know it, which is why you should take care of the stranger in his time of need. Again, trippy. God made humanity, and he, but He also made a- angels. And these angels possess the ability to enter into our dimension, their interdimensionality, and take on the, the form of humans. They can look like humans. You might not even know it. Now, they can also take on other forms. And you read through the Gospels, and you have a lot of examples of angels all over the place, various forms and looks. And one of the things that's helpful when approaching a very trippy and challenging passage like Revelation 9, is again, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it's important you know, you're not alone on the planet, okay? There exists around us angelic hosts, the angels of God, which seek to bless us, and then other angels that don't have your best interest in mind. In fact, there's probably all kinds of varieties of these fallen angels, Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul acknowledges, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And then he provides an interesting listing. He says, we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness, which seems to be potentially varying categories of fallen angels. Now, aside from humanity, we understand that our universe is cohabited by various angelic creatures, a third of which are fallen. And yet you should also note that the Bible seems to affirm the existence of a third type of creature, alien, to God's original design. Now, we're (laughs) going to take a little detour, but bear with me. Give me a little time. We'll get back. In Genesis chapter 6, we read the following. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, And daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were, we're told, giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men of old, Men of renown. Now during this period of human history, the Bible tells us that there were giants on the earth. In fact, it continue to provide this description that they were mighty men of old. Just men of renown. Like in the original Hebrew, the word we have translated giants is the word Nephilim. It would again appear, according to the text, that during this population explosion, the human genome, DNA somehow was altered, men could not only grow as a a result to incredible statures, but also possess the ability to achieve supernatural feats, of which, again, we're told they were renowned, famous for. Could it be that Greek mythology actually has some basis in a pre-flood world, a totally different type of thing happening? Again, it's different. Now, how did this happen? Well again the record in Genesis tells us this took place when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore them children and the children were these Nephilim now there is little confusion to the plain reading of what is meant by the daughters of men human females the controversy of the text though does center on the identity of these sons of God like what does that mean right because there's some implications Now, there are those who do attempt to try to read into this a natural reading. Well, the the sons of God are are, are men. This is just talking about men and women and some natural biological thing. The problem with that is that this phrase, we have sons of God, is never once used in the Bible to ever refer to human beings. Not once. Aside from this passage in Genesis 6, the phrase is only used in Job 1, verse 6, Job 2, verse 1. Job 38, verse 7. And in all three places, the sons of God, or literally ben Elohim, it's used as a direct reference to angelic beings. In fact, the scholars behind the Septuagint, one of the early translations of the Old Testament, actually translate the phrase, sons of God, as the angels of God. Now, though the scriptures present angels as being asexual, and not able to procreate among themselves. Jesus makes this point in Matthew 12 where he says the angels are, 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 are not given to marriage. Like They don't procreate. They don't replicate. They're, they're different in that sense. They're asexual. But it appears that these Nephilim, these sons of, the, the, the byproduct of the sons of God and the daughters of men, were born through some type of very strange sexual intercourse occurring between fallen angels at human women. That's what I believe Genesis 6 is describing for us. And I, I get it, man. What I'm saying sounds nuts. <laughs> I'm with you. But, keep in mind, we do know, right, that angels can take on human form. We've already established that. And every time they do take on human form, and that's recorded in the Scriptures, it's always in the male form, which, again, I think is interesting. <laughs> I don't want to deviate any further down the rabbit hole, but I will. Anytime someone says that, they, they're about to. Um, I, don't, I don't encourage you to Google it <laughs> or research it. You, you just, just take my word for this one, okay? That sexual interaction, sexual perversion with demons is a very common thing in the occult. Again don't Google that you're going to find some strange things, but it's true. Now, in the end, the destruction of this mutated version of humanity is really what made Noah's flood such an, a, a necessity. He had to cleanse the human genome starting with just one family, one set of genetics. Again, a satanic plot, maybe the seed of the woman would be the savior if you corrupt the human gene pool, and you can't have, uh, you know, a pure human, you know, there's all kinds of theories, all kinds of ways, and yet, you know, the truth about Noah's flood is, (laughs) okay, it might have dealt with one problem, but, you know, you you can't kill an angel, can't kill an angel, and I I, I guarantee you can't drown one, okay, so, as such, what do you do with these, these angels that committed these sexual perversions with human women? What do you do with them? If you can't kill them and you can't drown them, but you're trying to punish them and keep this from happening? Well, Jude chapter 1, which is, which is odd because there's really only one chapter. <laughs> but we're told, let me read you a section of Scripture. that there were angels, we're told, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. It's these angels, Jude tells us, Jesus has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example. Again, this entire notion that god punished at some point in time fallen angels who had committed this abomination placing them in chains it's affirmed not just in jude but also second peter chapter 2 the apostle writes this he says god did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and that word hell it's actually it's a totally different translation it's the deep abyss is literally what it's what it should be translated as and delivered them we're told into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now looking back at our text, when Satan unlocks the bottomless pit, two things, we're told, are released. Look again, there's smoke. First thing that comes out, smoke. And then from the smoke, what, what comes? Well, these locusts. Now initially John focuses on the locusts who then proceed to, to torment everyone on earth for a period of five months with the lone exception of the 144,000 who were sealed with the mark of God on their forehead. John even says that during these five months, the, the torment, the torture, it's so terrible that men will want to die but will not be allowed to during this period. And yet, while they will not become a factor until the sixth trumpet sounds, following these terrifying five months, I believe, and again, you can read, find your own interpretations, but I believe, it's my conviction, that this smoke that comes out, the smoke released from the pit, I believe it ends up becoming this army of horsemen, or or literally a cavalry, I believe, of fallen angels. And the total of them is 200 million. And it'll be during these five months that an angelic army is waiting for the release of four more angels who were bound at Euphrates. Again, these angels were actually prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year. And in the end, they will be responsible, this army of fallen angels, of killing a third of mankind. And again, go back to Jude. It's not an accident. We're told that these fallen angels had been what? Reserved. They'd been placed into chains. Reserved, held back, not allowed on the earth for what? They've been reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for, there's a reason, the judgment of the great day. Now, to be fair, there are those who try to connect the sixth trumpet with the six bold judgments, which set into motion, and we'll see this in a few, few weeks, set into motion the final battle of Armageddon. Ultimately, they do this to make verses 16 through 19 of Revelation 9, Uh, more understandable you see what what they'll do is they'll try to read into these bizarre descriptions uh, modern weaponry that john would have had a hard time describing from a first century context right additionally those who take this particular position that what we what we read of in the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl are the same people that take this position will will point to well the the euphrates is mentioned in both Euphrates is dried up in the, in the bold judgment, allowing the armies from the east to come and, and for this final battle in the Valley of Megiddo. And, the, and then they'll build on that idea by saying that, well, d- you do know, right, that the People's Republic of China boasts of having an army of 200 million men. So clearly, you know, this, is, this is a China on the march. Okay. There are problems with that perspective, though. First, the armies of the world in Revelation 16 are brought to Armageddon by three unclean spirits. Whereas in Revelation 9, things are initiated by the release of four angels who actually seem to lead the army itself. Aside from this, in our text, John only mentions the Euphrates as it relates to these these four angels where they're bound. Like, Revelation 9 makes no mention of the river drying up to be a super highway. And lastly, if you just think about the pure logistics of what it would take to supply and then move a 200 man army, it's, it's actually impossible. Like, you can't move that many people, you can't feed them, clothe them, cover them. Like, the pure logistics of, of, how, of how big. If they were to march. like Again, there's, you couldn't find a, a, a path, yet alone the Euphrates River. Let me be clear. These horses that John sees scouring the earth that we're given the account of at the end of the chapter, they are unlike anything else described in the Bible. You know that. And, I should add, they don't easily correspond to some type of modern uh, warfare, a method of warfare that that we know of today. Like again, you read about these horses and you're trying to like, well what is this? Is it an Apache helicopter? Is it No, you can't like it's trippy. Like, what is it? I don't Like I believe that the only conclusion you can reach about the sixth trumpet is that it's a continuation of the previous trumpet. That God allows an army of 200 million fallen angels to invade the earth and in the process kill a third of humanity. Now, while we understand that there are fallen angels in the bottomless pit, we can assume are released, what about these bizarre creatures who emerge out of the smoke that John simply refers to as being locusts? I didn't didn't skip it. We're going to get to it. You know, it's true that I always seek, kind of as a rule of thumb, to stick to the plain literal reading of a text. It's kind of a, a, a fallback for me. But in this case, I, I don't believe what John is, is recording here should be read literally. Like Instead, I think this reference to locusts is John's way of trying to describe for us more of the nature of what's happening. That there's, there's, there's a swarming nature to, to these devastating creatures. Now before I tell you what the creatures are, let me, let me give you a few reasons why I don't think they're actually locusts. For starters, like, it's obvious that this detailed description of these creatures provided by John in verses 7-10 through 10 is not consistent in any way, shape, or form with the anatomy of any type of locust. Like Again, l- l- like, look at John's description. And, and to his credit, like he, he employs a lot of illustrative language. He says, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. He's not saying they were horses. He's saying they were like, and on their heads were crowns something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like a woman's hair. It wasn't a woman's hair, but it was like it. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had these breastplates, like breastplates of iron. The sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots. wasn't chariots, but the sound was like that. Chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpion tails, and there were stingers in their tails. Like Again, th- there's no, like, that doesn't fit a description of a locust. The other clue that these were not literal locusts centers on the fact that locusts do not typically avoid eating vegetation. It's kind of the thing of a locust to eat green stuff. And, and also know that locusts aren't typically hostile creatures. Like they don't, uh, they don't skip over the plants in your front yard to torment you. Like locusts aren't typically aggressive when it comes to human beings. They, they aren't inclined to attack and torment human, huma- humanity. John says, look at it beginning in verse 4, he says, They were commanded not to harm the grass or any green thing or any tree, but they were commanded to harm men who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given authority to kill them, only to torment them. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And then in verse 10, John adds that their tails were like scorpions. They had these stingers. Their power was to hurt men for five months. Beyond these things, in, in Proverbs 30, We're given another detail. We're told that the locusts have no king. Which is one of the things that makes kind of the uniformity about the way that they swarm really interesting. We don't know. There's a uniformity to it. We just don't know how. There's no king. There's no leader. There's no dominant. Like like a queen ant of a colony. Locusts don't have the equivalent of that. So we're told in the Bible, locusts have no king. But these locusts, (laughs) they do, right? Verse 11. They have a king over them. This king is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is Abaddon in Hebrew and Greek, Apollyon, or literally his name is Destruction, and he has the name Destroyer. Again, all of the language that John uses is kind of building the argument that don't view locusts as being actual locusts. There's something else. So, what is is Satan letting loose on the earth? Like, what is Satan release that torments... Men for five months if it's not insects. Like what in the world are they? Now, when you begin to wrap your mind around Genesis 6, you're left wondering. I don't know if you're, if you're left wondering. I am. Like, what happened to the Nephilim, right? Following the flood. Okay, I got I it with the fallen angels. They get placed in the bottomless pit. You can't drown an angel. But, I mean, theoretically speaking, like, you could imagine that the alien offspring of angels mating with humans would also be kind of difficult to kill, right? Especially if they're men of renown. Now, sure, their physical bodies would have perished in the flood, the human part of them. But their angelic nature would have remained, like, theoretically. Like, so, so what happened to them? Now, it's very difficult to say with 100% certainty. But I think the clue is provided in Luke chapter 8. We we have this interesting story, I think sheds light on what we're reading here in Revelation 9. I'll read it for you. We're told that Jesus stepped out on the land, and there he met a man from the city who had demons for a long time. Now the word demon is evil spirits. This man wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, before getting to Jesus' response, Luke, he explains for us the justification of the demon's reaction here. Luke tells us that Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him. He was being kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, but he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. So this man had like a supernatural strength. You couldn't restrain him. So Jesus asked... The demon, he says, what's your name? And he says, legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged Jesus, notice, that he would not command them to go into the abyss. The exact same word used for bottomless pit. Now a herd of swine was feeding on the mountain, so they begged Jesus that he would permit them to enter them. So he did. The demons went out of the man, entered the swine. The herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned now, it would seem that while similar demons and fallen angels appear to have some very significant differences like for example one of the interesting things about the angelic realm is that we have zero examples in the bible of angels fallen or not actually possessing people they don't need to angelic possession it's not necessary i mean they could enter our dimension looking like a human being so why would they need to to possess a human being no mention of of angels fallen or, or not possessing people nor do we ever have a mention of an angel craving a physical body to indwell as we see the demons referenced in this story with jesus And yet, again, as illustrated by the story and many others in the Gospels, there is something about demons, in particular, where they long for and even somehow like crave. They necessitate a physical embodiment. Again, not something you ever see with angels, but you see it all the time with demons. As such, I believe that demons are different from fallen angels and are actually the disembodied remnant of these Nephilim, which kind of make them a pseudo-angelic being that needs a physical host, something to indwell. Like, either way. What's interesting about this story recorded in the Gospel of Luke is that these demons, what do they fear? Remember? They fear that Jesus might not allow them to go possess something else, and instead do what? cast them into the abyss, the dreaded abyss. The implication being that many demons have ended up being cast into the bottomless pit. In the end, what I believe we have being described by John in this fifth trumpet is actually a five-month period of time during the Great Tribulation when an unknown number of these demons being held in the bottomless pit are given bodies and set loose on earth to torment mankind. And torment man they do. Verse 5, John says, their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And I have no idea what the strike of a scorpion feels like. And I have no plans to ever experience it. I don't want to be stung by a scorpion. But you know, from the Greek, a better translation of the word To torment would be to torture. like It's a loaded term. It it, it literally means the vexation of both the mind and the body with grievous pains. And what's truly disturbing about the ordeal is that according to verse 6, John says that in those days men will seek death, will not find it. They will desire to die. Death will flee from them. You know, never before... In the history of the planet. Has anything. Similar to this. Ever happened. Like what's, what John is saying. Is that death. Like death. The wages of sin is death. Death decides to take a holiday. Death taps out. It's like for five months. I'm going on vacation. So you. Men will seek so actively. They will seek to die. But John says death will flee from them. What does that look like? You try to kill yourself, and you can't. Again, I don't want to go so far as to say that there's biblical evidence for the zombie apocalypse, but this is as close as you'll get. People trying to kill them actively. Actively. But they're not dead. I mean, imagine like all the the mutilation that would occur. How long do you think it it took mankind to figure out they couldn't die? You know, a, a week or two? It's like, man, I have jumped off this bridge four times. I have tried to drown myself. For whatever reason, I'm really bad at dying. And I'm limping and gipping all around the earth, Right? Like a zombie. I got broken legs and broken arms. And I just can't die. Weird. Now, before we wrap things up, <laughs> some of you are like, please. You can't help but kind of think. So what, what, what we have being described is five months of demons going all around the earth, tormenting and torturing men. And that is followed by a 200-million-man angelic army led by four demons prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year that kill a third of mankind. And again, you're like, how does that play out? Well, I mean, if, if, if aliens are angels, then it, like, there is a moment in time we're invaded by aliens. An angelic alien invasion. Do they need ships to come in? I don't know. Just spitballing. Come up with your own theories. What strikes me, though, about the passage just from the... So there's some bad stuff in this bottomless pit. We can agree with that, right? There's some bad stuff on it. Whatever it is that's released, it's not good. It gets bad. It's dark. It's wicked. So why in the world would God give Satan the key to the bottomless pit? God knows what's in there. God knows that Satan wants it out. So why would God give him the key? Never forget that God here is dealing with a planet that is filled with people He has tried to save by sending His Son to die on the cross. This is a world of people that have absolutely, completely rejected Jesus and the offer of salvation. In fact, they want nothing to do with Jesus at all, okay? So that's a context. You might think of it this way. Everyone on the planet at this point, you know, with the exception of those that are getting saved, sealed with the the 144,000, sealed with the mark of God, like these people are choosing morally. And their rejection of Jesus, they are saying... I would rather spend my eternity in hell than spend it with you. That's what anyone that dies rejecting Jesus, like, it's a misconception that God sends anyone to hell, because that would be cruel. God never sends anyone to hell. What he does is he lovingly allows people to choose to go there. Like, Like, that's the idea, that's the notion. So here's God dealing with this kind of a group of people. I'd rather hell instead of you. So what does God do? I believe with the desire, with the intent to persuade them from their evil. Because God knows. What does he do? He's like, oh, you want want hell. Okay? Well, how about a five-month test drop? Here you go. God allows hell to ascend up to earth to give everybody a taste. For what reason? He wants to save them. He's trying to get through to them. You know, I hope you know that hell is not a party. Like, it's not a party. Like, hell, as I mentioned, was created for Satan and the fallen angels and the demons, hell is a place of torment. It is a place of terror. In fact, I think what's interesting is those who are sent to hell, the Bible says, desire to die. But death will flee from them. Interesting, the same thing happens on earth, doesn't it? You want to die, but you can't. You can't. You see, in hell there is no reprieve. There is no escape. And the torture's constant. And it's almost as if by allowing Satan to set loose onto the earth, the future occupants of hell, God is illustrating for man what his eternity would look like if he continues down his path. It's like God's saying, you don't want it. You have options. So it's a crazy passage, right? Like 19 verses is crazy, bizarre. Hard to even wrap your mind around it all, right? But the chapter, I believe, reserves the most unbelievable for the last two verses. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed with these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands. That they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murderers and sorcerers and their sexual immorality or their thefts. Like, to me, that's the craziest part of the chapter. You see an angelic invasion kill a third of the planet and demons tormenting mankind for five months you gotta you gotta take a step back and do a little self evaluation, I would think. And no doubt people probably did. But John affirms that the majority didn't, and instead became all the more resolute. And they're sin. Trippy chapter. Father Lord, thank you for your word.